Well, it's certainly been a tumultuous start to 2023. Rate hikes continued, banking crisis closed down one of the major multifamily lenders in New York, and offices have begun trading at a discount. It's definitely showing up too in the general investment sales market. In the first quarter of this year, sales fell 50%, and 2023 is now on pace to be the slowest year in the city's investment sales market since 2009. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. With me right now is Bob Knackle. He's the head of JLL's New York Private Capital Group. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Miriam. So nice to be with you this morning. Some deals must be getting done. What sorts of deals are getting done and where are they? Well, I think the, the deals that are getting done are transactions where the seller uh, either has no choice, is not the discretionary seller, or there is an extraordinarily compelling reason why the seller wants to transact. Um, and that might not necessarily be that they have to transact, but that uh, there's been some pent-up demand. They've wanted to sell for a while. You know, it's important to understand also that uh, the New York City investment sales market has been in correction mode essentially since October of 2015, uh, it took a little bit of a break in the second half of 2021 and the first half of 22. Uh, but for that 12-month period, we've been in correction mode. So I think there is a lot of pent-up demand in the market. Um, there are some folks who believe that they can uh, deploy capital uh, in a better way in a different market or in a different product type. Um, and so there are a lot of compelling reasons why folks may want to sell today. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that we're telling most sellers that now is not the best time to do it. So does that mean anytime someone brings something to market, they think the buying community thinks there's something wrong with it? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, I think there are a variety of reasons, sometimes not real estate related. Um, but, you know, one of the, the things that is impacting the market today also is that uh, most refinances are requiring cash to be put into the property to effectuate the refinance. And notwithstanding whether the owner has that capital or doesn't have that capital, they may choose not to put that fresh capital into the property to effectuate the new refinancing. So um, it, it's not a, just a situation where uh, properties are distressed. There are, as I said, compelling reasons why people are deciding to make a move today. Uh, and that has, that has to do with a number of factors, uh, how the debt is looking, uh, what's happening with tenancy, where they view the best place to be investing today. Um, you know, things have shifted on the, uh, on the landscape of, of geography in terms of the preference that capital has. There are a number of factors that come into play. Is there a deal that you've done recently where you've thought, oh wow, that really speaks to the, um, the way that the market is going? Yeah, I, I don't wanna mention a specific deal, Miriam, because I don't wanna get anybody in hot water. But um, you know, there, there, are, there are a number of folks uh, that are taking advantage of current market conditions. Look, the, the reality is, that in our commercial real estate market and in all markets, uh, it is always a battle between fear and greed. Um, and when greed is winning, there are certain market conditions. When fear is winning, there are certain market conditions. Uh, fear is winning today. 
and it's said that, you know, be greedy when uh, most people are fearful. Um, some people are taking advantage of that, but not many. Uh, and I think the, the overwhelming reason that folks are giving for a little bit of inertia in the market uh, is that they're busy dealing with issues that they have within their portfolios. So uh, it's a very, very complex time, uh, an interesting time. Um, a lot of people have a lot of different types of issues to figure out within their portfolio. And so, um, you know, I find that in times like this, it's actually um, a, a good time to be a broker because clients are very, very thirsty for information, market data, who's doing what. The market is so opaque that, that everybody's trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And so, you know, paying attention to all the different metrics in the market is very, very important today. So those sellers that you're saying, hey, wait, this isn't a good time, when are you saying you'll check back in for a potential sale? Because I feel like people have been saying that for a while, but I feel like we're pushing the end date out further and further. When is going to be a good time to potentially sell at this point? Well, it depends. One of the things that I think is most interesting about the current market is that, you know, I've been through, uh, through several cycles and uh, this market is behaving very different than, it, than the past corrections. If you look at the savings and loan crisis in the early 90s, and you look at the recession we went through in the early 2000s, and then the great financial crisis, so 08, 09, um, the one thing that was very similar is that all property types kind of moved in unison. They all were going in the same direction, the magnitude of change was slightly different, but the market was very, very highly correlated in terms of product type. What we're seeing today is that each product type is performing and moving very differently. Um, we have dynamics within the residential sector that are actually kind of positive. Uh, you know, every piece of legislation that has been passed within the past five years or ignored in the past five years by our legislators have done nothing but exerted upward pressure on, on multifamily rents uh, in free market apartments. So, you know, that is, if you, if you, anybody out there feels their rent is too high, just look at your local politician. It's because of the policies that they've enacted that, that rents are so high today. But the dynamics within the multifamily market are fairly healthy. Rents are going up. Uh, demand is extraordinarily strong, notwithstanding the political headwinds in the space. Yes, cap rates are up because lending rates are up, but generally conditions are fairly good in that space. Uh, if we look at the land market, uh, the land for uh, rental construction of apartments it has completely evaporated. There's no new supply coming on line, which is one of the reasons why there's so much upward pressure being exerted on rents, no new supply. Uh, the condo market has seen uh, a drop in land pricing uh, simply because construction lending has gotten so expensive. So we've seen a significant drop in land value, but there is robust um, demand at that new price point. Uh, a bright spot in the market today actually is retail. Retail rents have fallen very significantly from their peak, but they've been falling for five years. So generally, market participants believe that resident uh, that retail rents uh, will not fall any further. Leasing activity is picking up. 
And for the first time in five years, we're getting calls from investors who are asking what retail properties we have for sale. And then there's the office market, uh, which is the most difficult to figure out. Uh, I would say that the, the Class A new construction office sector is doing extraordinarily well. Everything else has its challenges, and it's really building to building, uh, block to block to figure out what's going on, uh, some challenges relative to tenancies. But I think that that will play out and become more clear as we get further into a, a series of lease expirations, determine what tenants are going to do, see what the impact on aggregate office demand is going to be. Um, but there are uh, there's still a lot of variables that are unclear within the office sector that uh, we're trying to get some clarity on. Do you have any idea in terms of value shifts that might have happened? Like, can you put a figure on that? Because a lot of these buildings were, the value was kind of based on money being free and it's not really free anymore, is it? So have you had any thought about how much the values might have shifts, shifted on certain yeah, properties? Yeah, well, one of the things I, I wanna make a comment about about money being so cheap um, you know, it, it's not always the case uh, that value goes down when interest rates go up, uh, but it is always the case that, that value goes up uh, when interest rates go down. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, we unfortunately went through a period where interest rates were so low for so long, the market got used to it. And it's actually remarkable that the market started to correct in October of 2015 and rates stayed so long, so, so low for so much longer that we were almost in a period where um, it didn't matter that rates were so low, the market was kind of shifting and correcting. Um, so I think I, I'm reluctant to, to throw out any uh, percentages in terms of diminution in value because averages never uh, really reflect value. Um, of a, a particular property. And when you say uh, that sector went down by X percent, everybody thinks their particular building in that sector went down by that percent. And it's completely different uh, building to building. So um, absolutely, we can say that there has been downward pressure exerted on value. Um, values today are not what they were years ago, but this is something that has been um, been happening for quite a while. How are um, investors viewing multifamily at the moment when it comes to rent stabilized? Well, it depends. I think they're generally uh, with the uh, policy changes that were implemented in June of 2019, it essentially took away the ability to, um, to extract upside potential from rent stabilized apartments. Um, and that has created a, a significant change in the marketplace. You know, when, when we were doing um, valuations on stabilized buildings years ago, we would apply a very low cap rate to the stabilized component and a higher cap rate to the free market component, and that flipped completely. Now we apply a, a lower cap rate to the free market units and a higher cap rate to the stabilized. It's virtually impossible to extract upside uh, from a stabilized unit. There's no incentive whatsoever to try to evict the tenant because they are illegally subletting or it's not their primary residence. Is why spend the legal fees to only get the same rent you were getting before. 
Um, so, uh, and, and the reality is that a lot of rent-stabilized units that have become vacant have not been re-rented. So again, a, a policy change that was completely misguided. Um, they also have taken out the incentive for the private sector to invest in the housing stock uh, because of the, the way that the, uh, the MCI and the IAI programs have been marginalized. Really terrible policy from a, a housing perspective because the thing that saved the, the dilapidated condition of the housing stock in the 1970s were the IAI and the MCI programs that incentivized the private sector to invest tens of billions of dollars in the housing stock that really cleaned it up. Uh, but that incentive is no longer there. So I think there are some investors that are, uh, are looking at rent-regulated properties as, um, as investments that over time will perform well, that there's a political shift that the pendulum will swing back and forth. And, you know, there are some folks who think that that pendulum will swing. Uh, there are other folks that say, well, we've, we've always had a supermajority of uh, anti-real estate folks in the Assembly, but it's always been a thin margin in the Senate. Now the Senate is a supermajority of folks who, who appear not to like real estate. Um, and so that pendulum might not swing back, which is why we've had such a tangible shift in New York City families and high net worth investors that for decades would only buy New York City properties that now won't touch a New York City property and are only buying outside of New York. Um, and a whole host of new buyers that have entered the market um, that are creating all this demand that I, I referenced earlier. But it's a very, very different horizon uh, within the multifamily sector in New York than we've seen historically. We had Alicia Glenn on the podcast recently and, uh, you know, obviously not getting into her politics or anything, but she did say that maybe it's not a good idea to make rental housing a place where people can make squillions of dollars. Make money, sure, but maybe not squillions. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think, do you believe in the free market system or do you not? Is, uh, is housing an entitlement? Um, you know, it, it's everyone needs a place to live, um, you know, but can you make the same argument? Can you say, well, people need to commute, so any commuter should have a subsidized car. Um, you know, everybody needs to eat. Should food be subsidized? Um, you know, I think that you have to look at um, these conditions. I think that the, um, the government, uh, municipality, has a tremendous opportunity to provide housing. They just can't get policy right. You know, one of the things I did during the pandemic, I walked around the entire island of Manhattan, looked at every single building south of 96th Street, and the thing that was most impactful on me is, was that on public housing, lot coverage is, is probably less than 15%. We can solve all our housing problems just by addressing supply. Um, it, it, it's almost as if uh, our elected officials feel like they should confiscate private property and people shouldn't make money on housing when the, the solutions are right in front of them. You know, bring back the IAI and the MCI program. That might free up a, a minimum, people are saying 40,000 apartments. It could be as many as 100,000 apartments. Um, 
bring back the uh, the Affordable New York slash 421A program. Uh, create a 421G citywide that would incentivize people to convert older obsolete office buildings uh, into residential. Um, create incentives to create more supply. And even if you don't believe that an Economics 101 textbook is accurate, look no further than the pandemic. We had such high vacancies. Rents dropped 30%. So I think the, uh, the city can do tremendous things to create more housing. The, the conditions within public housing are, are not ideal. Just read, the, read articles that have been written about what is required, the, the deferred maintenance that exists within the system. Um, you could build new housing on a super block where public housing exists today, uh, relocate everyone without dislocating them, uh, relocate everyone in the buildings on that super block into one new building, build several other new buildings on that land, convert half of that land from non-tax paying to tax paying, create mixed-use uh, housing, public-private partnerships are a big solution. This seems like such an easy fix, and why it's not done, I don't understand. But you know, to say that um, maybe you shouldn't be able to make so much money uh, in a, a free market system, um, you know, I, I don't think um, is the, uh, the intention. And if you uh, look at the quality of the housing stock and the living conditions, I would bet if you polled people who lived in privately owned real estate versus people whose living conditions are like in publicly owned uh, housing, I think you'd you'd see the, a big difference. So I think that um, you know to to look at the housing issue uh, as being so problematic. I think everyone's missing the point of you, we need supply. If we add supply to the system, it solves all the problems. So um, you know I think that. Um, uh, it's a situation that is a more easy fix than the politicians are uh, are uh, alluding to. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, one of the problems that's embedded in the system is that there is a lot of uh, political aversion to new projects uh, occurring in their districts because a lot of people move into the district that don't know them and may not vote for them. And that is unfortunately a reality. I've had two city council people tell me that that's why they voted against projects in their district. Um, and they should be representing their constituents, not looking out for their own uh, political well-being. So let's think about what might be happening in the next few months. Um, as we move into summer, we move into the second quarter of the year, what do you expect is going to be taking up most of your time and most of brokers' time? More relationship building or are we going to see some actual transactions? No, I think transaction volume will pick up. I, it would be hard to imagine transaction volume getting any slower. There are a bunch of folks that are uh, looking to, um, to make moves. It's a question of trying to figure out the right time. Um, I think what we've seen uh, is that there's been a lot of hesitation simply because people are unclear about where things are going. And, and actually, uncertainty is always bad for markets, but actually does create a divergence of opinion. Uh, and when you have some people thinking 
uh, red and some people thinking green, that's generally good for the market because then you have transaction volume occurring. Um, but I think that this refinance risk is the biggest issue as we go through the rest of this year and probably into next year as well in that, you know, will do, do people have the capital to put into a property to effectuate the refinance? Uh, and if they don't have it, I think the, uh, the path is clear. If they do have it, the question is, do they want to put it into that particular asset at this particular time? So a lot of, a lot of soul searching going on, a lot of figuring out, uh, repositioning of portfolios, um, what type of asset class do people want to be in, uh, and in what, what geographic location. And so a lot of, a lot of questions in the market today and property owners are trying to figure out the answers to those questions. Just some quick advice before we wrap, wrap up, you know, you're talking about for brokers managing this period of time and it is a, a relationship game. And so it's about building relationships, but what advice would you give to perhaps a younger broker who does still need to make money they can't sort of take a break and just work on relationships like what advice would you give where, where would you say to direct attention well i would look at look at the motivation of sellers uh we always look at that but i think now it's more important than ever because a a purely discretionary seller uh is going to find it challenging to get the pricing that's going to be compelling for them to transact so i think look for motivation but realize that you know, coming out of every downturn, we've seen new investors emerge. Uh, we've seen new market participants get to the top of the game, whether it's in brokerage or law or banking. Um, there are always new people that, that come out of these downturns and, and really make great strides. So I think that's something to hold on to. But also realize that, it, you know, it is a relationship business and you, you want to help folks and give them the best advice you possibly can. Uh, because although uh, we're going through this tough time now, uh, it's important to remember that the market always has been, is, and always will be cyclical. And we will come out of this. Um, it's just a question of how and when. Bob, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, great to have you on the show. Always great to be with you, Miriam. We'll see you at Rebney this coming week. Is that likely? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite events of the year. Well, I remember last year you said it was your 36th, so this would be your 37th, Rebney. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. That's Bob Knackle from JLL. And I also spoke with Aaron Appel this week to get a sense of the financing environment. Yeah, I mean, look, I would tell you that coming out of COVID, there was some credit that got moved, albeit it was very limited. There was a lot of lenders that were looking to potentially sell positions, but the pricing that they wanted for those positions um, was unrealistic. Uh, I think at this point in the cycle, uh, with where rates have gone to and the fact that there are transactions now where, you know, the quote unquote can kicking can't take place anymore because the cost uh, of the capital um, to, to kick the can down the road is so expensive. We're starting to see some breaks in the market with assets either going back or sponsors unable to make debt service payments, depending on the situation uh, taking place at the actual asset or within that company. And typically when that happens, uh, credit providers uh, will either look to move the position uh, or they will look to find an alternative solution. And if that's them taking back the asset, and then looking to bring somebody in to operate that asset for them while they wait to 
stabilize it or wait for a better time in the market. Uh, we've seen, you know, sort of both those scenarios start to take place. Uh, albeit it's not on as a robust basis as, you know, the headlines would say, but there are definitely tricky situations in the marketplace. Give me an example of uh, a tricky situation that's been resolved. Um, sure. I mean, we have, we have a, a lender who took back an asset from a sponsor. The sponsor had a lot of capital invested in that asset. They didn't think it made sense to contribute additional uh, capital to that transaction. The lender uh, called us and we brought a sponsor in to uh, come into the asset to inject some level of capital. Uh, alongside the lender who's going who's gonna to actually inject capital into the transaction as well, and that sponsor's going to operate it. It was a, uh, a property sort of mid-reposition, and that sponsor's going to oversee the reposition. They'll hold it with the lender, and uh, at some point that asset will be disposed of. So what kind of um, creativity do you need to bring to that sort of arrangement? Because that's not something that you would have been arranging like a year ago, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I think, look, in this market right now, there's there's a tremendous amount of volatility. Uh, beauty is a bit in the eye of the beholder. Uh, there are assets that we see where there's a deferring view on value that could be anywhere from 5% up to, you know, as, as wide we've seen as 35 40%. And I think that's what one's view is of the future. Uh, so I think you have to find, look, you have to find the right partners that have, uh, you know, a certain type of vision for an asset. You have to find... Uh, parties in a, in a situation like that that know how to operate, um, you know, as a good partner um, and, uh, um, you know, have their interests aligned with, with, with the credit providers taking back the asset. If we look at some of the deals that you've arranged lately, you secured $131 million financing for the construction of a new apartment development in Long Island City. You also arranged the $313 million um, for 125 Greenwich. Uh, Lower Manhattan was previously known as 125 Greenwich. H how are these deals coming together? There, there's still capital. There's plenty of capital for multifamily development in New York City. Um, there's a tax abatement program, the 421A tax abatement program, which, um, you know, basically, you know, in layman's terms, um, provides uh, an abatement for, you know, tw uh, for 35 years uh, for property taxes. Uh, for new buildings, and the building is, is, is once developed, is, is taxed at, at just the land value, the original land value, so the improvements are not taxed. Uh, that program's gone away. Uh, it's expired. There's going to be a long lag in, in new multifamily development in New York City, whether you're in Manhattan or any of the boroughs. Economically, it's virtually impossible to make the mathematics of a rental development work um, without that tax abatement, and I think you're going to see a long lag in multifamily development. So. Uh, there's been capital uh, that's willing to, to invest in construction financing in that space right now for projects that have that abatement. Um, and uh, I think those lenders and equity investors realize that there's going to be a real supply constraint here uh, as rents are at all-time highs in New York. And, um, you know, they feel like it's a sector that, um, you know, should see growth and is, and is a you know, flight to safety, so to speak. After, I guess, in the immediate aftermath of Signature Bank's closure, there were brokers who were saying they were able to get some good rates, um, kind of make make use of the volatility in the market. Did you see any of those? Were you able to secure anything? Yeah, we uh, we rate locked a multifamily deal through Fannie Mae um, at a 4.99% coupon. Um, and uh, that was the first sub 5% coupon I think we've seen in, in 
six or seven months. So, um, you know, the drop in treasuries has helped the multifamily lending business. Uh, the agencies, uh, their credit spreads have, have widened, uh, but the drop in treasury has been greater than the widening in credit spread. Alternatively, when you look in the insurance company space or in the securitized mortgage space uh, for other asset classes and, and, and CMBS, uh, the credit spreads have widened uh, more than the drop in the treasury. So it's actually been a net negative uh, for the marketplace. Uh, but More than $16 billion worth of um, loans backed by commercial real estate in New York coming due this year. A number of those, obviously, in high-profile office buildings. How have you? How do you think the uh, maturity payoff conver- um, conversations have changed? It's transactional specific and it's credit provider specific. Some credit providers have a willingness and ability to extend their loans. Others, you know, don't have that ability and need to get paid off. Uh, and then, depending on the amount of credit on the asset, who the sponsor is. Uh, what the performance of the asset is. There could be credit available or there could not be credit available. So there's no trend happening yet in terms of how that's been? Yeah, I, I, would, say, I would say there's no trend. I, I would say, uh, look, the, the, the trend would be right now, I would tell you, is that you, you know, your ability to borrow first mortgage leverage is probably down somewhere between 10 to 25%, um, depending on the asset. Uh, against its cash flow versus where it was before this substantial rate increase. Um, so, you know, your ability to borrow is less. Uh, the cost of that money is more expensive. The cost of subordinate debt is substantially more expensive. Inherently, the cost of debt increasing makes it more difficult to put on the type of leverage that one could have put on. And then the, you know, the requirements of equity or the return requirements equity has is also increased. Uh, relative to what the expectations were, then that's based on the cost to borrow. You know, most transactions now um, that we're financing, uh, if anyone were to build or to borrow, uh, the yield they're building to, the cost of the debt is higher for the construction financing or the renovation financing than what the yield to the equity is. So it's what's called negative leverage, which makes it very, very tough to, to transact in this type of environment right now which is why you've seen such a slowdown in transactions. Some real estate players are calling for a government intervention to help provide short-term deal arrangements. Would you describe the situation as requiring that? Do you think that's a necessary measure? Listen, selfishly, that would be fantastic, you know, but I would tell you this is, you know, what's called a cycle. And, and there are business cycles. Business cycles are typically created by... Uh, monetary policy, uh, you know, both fiscal and monetary policy. And, you know, we had an extended period of time where there was, you know, money wasn't free, but it certainly, it certainly was extremely inexpensive. And we're in a period of time now where money is more expensive. And that is going to cause some level of distress, uh, you know, tied to, to certain types of assets that have been, you know, potentially over levered. Aaron Appel of Walker and Dunlop, and before that, Bob Knackle from JLL. I'm Miriam Hall. This is BizNow Reports. More stories and these sorts of topics in our show notes, and please don't forget to like and subscribe.